0: Hey guys, it's Jesse. A quick note before we start today's episode. Thanks to your listenership and interest, I was given the privilege of writing my first book on the Enneagram recently. It's called How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram. And I wrote it to be an Enneagram 101 Meets the Gospel book. If you've read it and you actually liked it, I wanted to ask a quick favor. I need people to go online and leave reviews. Sadly, many folks who dislike the Enneagram have given the book low reviews without ever even having read it. I would be really grateful if you take just a moment to click the link in the show notes and leave a review. Whether you write a review or simply leave a starred review, either will be really helpful so that others can read your real thoughts on how the book can help them build better relationships. So again, you can go to the link in the show notes, click that, leave a review. I'd be really grateful I would not have been given this opportunity to write this book without your support. So just know that your input continues to be invaluable. Again, you can click the link in the show notes to help me out. Okay, on to the episode. I worked
1: every summer of my college years at a camp for elementary age children. And my colleagues would sometimes come and get me with the really homesick kids who couldn't fall asleep and couldn't stop crying because You know, they were like, you're the homesick whisperer. Like, will you come in here and see if you can help him? And I really loved it. I can't tell you how many kids I ended up in conversations with at this camp who would tell me that their moms and dads were fighting a lot or getting a divorce. And it just, there was something always that I think God was growing in me that would make this my life's work.
2: This is a show about self-discovery.
0: About understanding ourselves about looking into the mirror to see the good the bad and the unknown of who we are
2: this is about how we relate to god
1: and everyone else
2: brought to you by relate better welcome 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 to the cast. <laughs>
0: Hey, welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. Every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram and we help you build better relationships. And today, we are actually kicking off our portion of going through all nine types as we do this brand new series, Moving Beyond Your Types Patterns.
2: So today, we're going to be looking at Type 1. Jesse, do you have, what do you think of when you think of a Type 1? being in their type pattern?
0: So uh, this is what comes to mind. So I have this friend and type one through and through, super, super dependable, very sort of specific in terms of how when he does things, like there's a particular way that things should be done and a real desire for justice. In fact, his occupation is that he works in a field of justice like that, Mm -hmm. that that's his career. He's got a significant staff that works under him. Um, But what he found a few years ago was that even though he had these great desires to do good, call for justice where there's areas of injustice, he just found himself just getting more and more angry Mm. to the point that You know, his staff would fail to take care of something and he would kind of go from like pretty relaxed to like instantaneously he's really mad about Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. And he just found himself in this place where he was just mad all the time. And his gut solution to everything was when somebody failed... To be mad at them. Right. And that the way to correct them is, I need to be as angry with them as possible to make it as clear as possible that this can never happen again. Mm -hmm. And he got to this point where he just realized, I can't live like this. Like, this is not a healthy way to live, just being mad all the time. He had come up against the wall. Yeah. He had come up against this wall of, I don't want to be mad all the time, and I don't know how to not be mad all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I have a whole lot of one in my personality. And... I think ones are such good people, you know, like they're just working so hard. Yeah. And so kudos to him that he found his anger, you know, but then, yeah, we come to this place where we're doing our own work. We're trying to become more, you know, balanced, holistic people, but then we're actually in this feedback loop of our own personality, our own behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And so... As we look at the one today, I'm thinking about um, in our episode 97 with Marilyn Vansel. you know, she talked about all these stages of the Christian life and how as we, you know, come into middle age, perhaps we come up against this wall, you know, and we can no longer do the things like we did them before. And we have kind of two choices after we sit there for a minute and maybe like throw a tantrum or two or, you know, bang our heads against the wall. We can either go back, and that's really tempting for a one, because they can just go back to kind of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and spinning their wheels. But really, the only way forward is through the wall, Mm -hmm. through finding a new way forward that isn't going to be at all the way that got you here in the first place.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for my friend, they, they had to come to the reality that, you know, his his gifts of speaking, you know, firm truth, his mm-hmm. gifts of high protocol, his gifts of there's a good and right way to do things, mm-hmm. those weren't not gifts. They just could not solve all of the dilemmas that he was running into, mm-hmm. you know, especially relationally. Yeah. And so he just got to this point where he had to figure out a new way to approach things. The reality is that my friend had come to a crossroads. It's a crossroads mm-hmm. that we all come to at some point. Uh, something has got to change because the way that I've been doing things is not going to get me through this wall. Mm -hmm. And either I can demand that everybody around me has to change Mm -hmm. or I can change. And the truth is, I have no control over everybody else. The only person that I have control over is me. And so it's an opportunity to to come to this crossroads and to look inward and to say, is there another way for me to do this?
2: Yes. So what we're doing this episode is inviting the type one to turn from this bounded mindset, you know, I'm bound in this little box that is my type, their mindset of being the rightest one, like I'm going to be the best one that there is.
0: That'll fix everything. Yes,
2: that would be, that would be the solution to a centered mindset where they're turning towards the middle, toward a new way of relating to God, themselves and others by incorporating tools from all the other types and we're proposing, you know, we believe that this is the place where each of us reflects the heart of Jesus.
0: And, of course, like, you know, we're using Enneagram language mm-hmm. to try to talk about the truths of the Scripture, you know. The Bible gives us so much encouragement about uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus and mm-hmm. what does it mean to go on this journey. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, let's think about 2 Corinthians three seventeen and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Mm. All of us are on a journey towards transformation when we are Mm -hmm. walking with Christ. There's very much a sense in which we are fully accepted as we are, and yet Jesus loves us way too much just to let us stay where we are. And so when we talk about this Enneagram stuff, we're trying to give language to this journey of transformation. What does it specifically look like within my relational style, my personality?
2: Mm-hmm. The thing I love about this verse specifically for type one is that you know it says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's a big part of the one's transformation. You know, we're going to talk about that as we go on. But, you know, we're looking for them to have fun, to experience lightness, to be able to live in that spirit of freedom. And that's a really radical transformation for the type one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about why the type one tool just isn't enough.
2: Right. Well, when you know, when someone discovers their core type, they get to work. Like, oh, this is my false self and this is my true self, and I really want to grow into my true self, but I'm still only have these few tools. So I might learn that I have a hammer and I'm actually using the hammer really effectively. But then I need to like cut a piece of wood and my hammer isn't working anymore. Mm -hmm. I need the right tool you know, and there's not going to be any single tool that any type has that is the right tool for every situation.
0: Yeah. 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 Because the the truth is that we show up, even if we're super healthy, if we are committed to, I'm only going to do my patterns. I'm only going to do my lens. I'm only going to do my way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. Even if it's healthy we're just missing too much. There's just too many other things, you know. So let's think about this for a second. You know, the type one, here they are at their best, you know, when it's all good things are positive, they're Mm -hmm. healthy. These folks are extremely ethical. They're hardworking. They're wise. They're orderly. They're committed to right action. But at their worst or just not their best, they can be really negative and critical. They're
2: rigid and inflexible, They can be judgmental and really hard on themselves and everyone around them. Yeah. So what we want for the type 1 and for each type is for them to have a comprehensive toolkit where they can choose the right tool at the right moment and in the right way. So then they're moving from this outside place, the boxed-in place of their type, into the middle where they can hold these gifts in a balance with one another.
0: Yeah. And so we want people to be able to walk into a situation and go, okay, I don't have to approach all of this with a hammer. Mm-hmm. I have choices right now. right? And that means that we need to know and understand what other options are available to us.
2: Mm-hmm. I really like this quote from the Enneagram Institute because it really shows that this is the work of the Enneagram. It was never meant to be, you find your type and you become an expert at being that type. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they say it like this, Ultimately, the goal is for each of us to move around the Enneagram, integrating what each type symbolizes and acquiring the healthy potentials of all the types. The ideal is to become a balanced, fully functioning person who can draw on the virtue of each type as needed.
0: Yeah. And so in order to develop new tools, we're going to have to look outside of our core type and all of those familiar patterns that we do all the time. And a great place to start is the pathways that are created by the arrows Mm -hmm. in the theory of the Enneagram. So let's talk a little bit about the arrows. So first one we wanna talk about, we wanna talk about the stress arrow. Stress arrow, think of it in terms of that's your reactive arrow. That's Mm -hmm. the one that when the pressures rise, It is your gut instinct. It happens so fast. It's probably not even conscious. And so where does the one go to under stress?
2: Type one moves to type four in stress. And when this is done in a non-resourceful way, it can look like that inner critic getting louder and louder. And so they start to hear all of their flaws, all their insecurities, and they're going to spiral down to sort of a depressed state where they feel like they're more broken than everyone else. They are excluded from the good people or the good things of life, similar to some of those dark feelings that the four can have. And they might even come to a place where they think other people see how non-good they are and that they'll never love them or be able to accept them as they are.
0: Yeah, their gap between their ideals and vision Mm -hmm. for life and the reality that they're experiencing becomes profoundly why. Yes. And why? What's going on here? You know, the truth is that all of us depend, you know, regardless of our type on the Enneagram, all of us get to a point and a place in which we attempt to do some level of self-soothing, mm-hmm. some level where our willpower just has given up. And for type ones, when the collapse begins to happen for you, you go over to that force base. And so it's the anger finally goes, I can't be mad this long. Mm-hmm. And finally it collapses into shame and into sort of a degree of self-hatred. Mm-hmm. And then that begins to also pour out onto other people as well.
2: Right. One of the things I love about the Enneagram, though, is that we can use this stress arrow in a resourceful way, that when you see yourself spiraling ones and taking on a lot of those negative and less resourceful four qualities, that can be your little red flag that says, whoa, like things are not going well. Like I need to switch gears. I'm on a destructive path. And so for the one, they can still go to the four, but pick up some of the more resourceful tools, you know, that they can accept that they are imperfect, Mm -hmm. that they are different, but that That doesn't mean they're not gifted and that they can use um, creation. They can use, you know, art and beauty, you know, things that are, I don't know, like I think music and nature, things that fours tend to Mm -hmm. really, you know, Mm -hmm. love
0: the aesthetic things Mm -hmm. and ones can be so stark. And even being reminded, it's not all on them. Yes. You know, when you, when, when a type one goes for a hike in the woods and they are reminded that this whole universe is not held together by mm-hmm. their own personal efforts. Yes. That they are not being held together by their own personal efforts. It's just a good reminder for them, you know. Yes. So, yeah, they can, they can leverage that high side of the four for yes. sure. And
2: we want to see ultimately more freedom – and less rigidity as they pick up some of those four tools.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that is the stress arrow, and that's us talking about what happens. That's your reactive posture. Mm -hmm. That's your, I'm not even thinking about it. It's Mm -hmm. just sort of gut reactions. (laughs) Okay, what can happen when the type 1 instead goes, I want to be conscious about this. Actually, I want to grow. So we're going to talk about the growth arrow, and this is who you are when you're proactive. You're actually intentionally seeking after growth.
2: Right. So for the ones, like we talked about, they they need that freedom. They need a lightness added into their serious nature. And so the type 1 moves to type 7 in growth, which I think is exactly what they need. Time for fun. They need fun. They need adventure. They need something spontaneous. And whenever they incorporate tools from the 7, their rigid stance starts to loosen up. You know, mm-hmm. they can go from, like, frown lines to laugh mm-hmm. lines. And they can have this acceptance that not all flaws are worth your attention.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good. And what's going on here? In many cases, whatever your growth area is, so for the ones, in many cases – Fun was not a value in their home. Yeah. Fun might have not been an option. It may not have been the thing that actually brought value or brought a degree of uh, feeling like, you know, righteousness. I mean, it just, fun wasn't valuable. Or it, there was too much fun Yeah, and no one taking care of yeah. the work. Yes. That could also be the other extreme. Totally. So for whatever reason, fun in many cases for ones was forsaken. It was yeah. put to the side. The idea of, Rest, relaxation, pleasure, mm-hmm. enjoyment, uh, laughter. Um, and what's really sad about this is that a lot of funs are super funny. Like they're really witty and then you get them relaxed and like they are such a joy to be around. Mm-hmm. And when they begin, when a one begins to reach for that seven quality, that healthy side, what they do begin to experience. You know, Lindsay, you talked about a minute ago, they begin to relax. Mm-hmm. Literally their their body begins to relax. They begin to laugh. They begin to remember that there is more to this experience in life than just fixing everything mm-hmm. and that there's there's just so much goodness and joy to be experienced. Yes, exactly. The bad news is <laughs> too much of a
2: good thing, you know, can go sideways and ones have this kind of special thing called the trap door. It is, you know, fairly common, understood in Enneagram circles that ones sometimes only experience You know that relaxation when they get away from their home turf you know they're not in their own home their responsibilities are gone and when they're in a new setting they might feel the freedom to indulge in something that they've never indulged in before something that's fine and good to Mm -hmm. indulge in but then the closer they get back to home that critical voice you know that guilt really creeps up on them so then they might come home and not share with anybody you know that they experienced this freedom. Mm-hmm. So I mean mm-hmm. we can just say for instance alcohol. Like mm-hmm. say they never drink alcohol at home. They had a drink on vacation and they realized it was enjoyable and they didn't take it too far. They just enjoyed a
0: drink. They weren't and, getting lit.
2: Yes. Yeah. Then they get home, they feel so guilty because people know them as this other, you know, that that they have maybe said alcohol is completely wrong. Yeah. And then they hide. And so they have this kind of secret pleasure that they may be indulging when they're away, but it doesn't incorporate itself fully into their real life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we want ones to just, you know, have that in their back pocket that we want them to experience joy and freedom that can be incorporated into who they are as a whole person, not just something they do when they're kind of away
0: and nobody's looking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we come to these things, you know, we're talking about this idea of like being reactive and proactive, of under stress, under mm-hmm. growth, like we, we are all equal opportunists for good and for evil. The, the work is not to avoid other types just because we're scared, right. something might go wrong. It's no, I want to pick up the very best of the best of all mm-hmm. of these things. That's the example Christ gave to us, fullness of life. He was full of surprises because he had so much going on within his personality. Mm -hmm. And so for us to follow him as our teacher, as our rabbi, as our savior, Mm -hmm. that means that we need to become like him. uh, And that means we got to break out of these patterns.
2: And it's okay to make mistakes along the way.
0: Well, yeah, that's what grace is for. Yeah,
2: that you might try new tools and use them the wrong way. And we look at Jesus' disciples and we see them doing that all the time, but that doesn't mean we don't try and continue to move forward.
0: Okay, so that is our teaching for moving beyond Type 1's patterns, but we don't want to do this alone. So today, we have a wonderful Type 1 guest with us, David Thomas. And I was actually out that day, so you're going to be hearing Lindsay and David in this conversation.
2: Dave Thomas is the Director of Family Counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee. He is the co-author of 10 books, including the best-selling Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys, and Are My Kids on Track? The 12 Emotional, Social, and Spiritual Milestones Your Child Needs to Reach, as well as his two latest titles, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys and Strong and Smart, A Boy's Guide to Building Healthy Emotions. He hosts a podcast called Raising Boys and Girls and has been featured in publications like The Washington Post and USA Today, and he speaks across the country. He and his wife, Connie, have a daughter twin sons, and a yellow lab named Owen. Welcome to the show, David.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Well, we are so happy to have you today. And um, what we'd like to know first is just, when did you first come across the Enneagram? And what were the aspects of type one that made you settle into that as your type?
1: Mm, It's a great question. And I have some questions myself on the first part of that question because Mm. I cannot seem to put my finger on an exact moment when I first discovered this tool. I do remember a season of life in my late 20s beginning to hear, which would have been three decades ago now, hearing more people talk about it. I'd had a couple of Mm -hmm. friends who'd grown up in the Catholic Church and had a lot of familiarity. They had used it as a tool within their church community and within their families. And so I began hearing more about it. And then several of my colleagues in my practice at Daystar, we just all had a a great curiosity around it.
2: So what was it about that oneness that called your name, read your mail?
1: (laughs) You know, I think as most people would probably say, potentially say it was the things I did not love about that number that resonated the strongest where I knew Mm -hmm. with a lot of certainty. And certainly for me, you know, reading about the inner critic and putting words to this internal interior experience I had had for so long, but not really knowing you have been listening to this voice for a long time. This voice has been coaching you, criticizing Mm, you, speaking to you inherently in a way that you haven't even ever really separated that out in, in some moments in certain seasons of your life from your personhood and understanding what it looks like, which I think is foundational work for one of separating out and naming that voice so that I don't see that as a core part of my identity, but really this inner critic who never takes a vacation and is actively looking for evidence to critique me and criticize me and point out where I'm fumbling the ball. And so that was a game-changing part of the experience for me of learning the work of that piece of it. But I would say the inner critic was foundational. And then I think to beginning to see how often I walk into any room and see everything that's wrong first, and I don't see Mm -hmm. things that are right. And that being, I think, a, a benchmark of ones we see that in spaces, we see that in relationships, we see that in people, and we certainly see it in ourselves. And, and that part of my work is training myself. I can't change the way I see but I can change what I do with what I see. And so figuring out what it looks like for me to walk into a space and greet people first. You know, for example, as a parent, I could walk into any of my kids' bedrooms on any given day <laughs> and miss seeing them and see mm-hmm. the dirty laundry first. And and I have no desire for that to be the first thing that I see. And yet it is what I see. But what I can do with that is turn my attention straight toward these three kids that I love with every fiber of my being and speak to them first.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. It's so important to be able to separate that inner critic out, especially if we're coming from a faith place, because so many of us believe that that inner critic is actually, you know, the Holy Spirit or God's conviction on us. And so we just feel that, you know, God is this taskmaster. He's just constantly calling us to account, you know, and we can't live under that for, for very long, yeah. you know, and it's so, for me, even that's been a big part of my journey is realizing like, oh, if I look at Jesus that I see in the Gospels, I don't see him talking to anyone like my inner voice is speaking to me. And, you know, being able to separate those things as that's not God and that's not at all how he speaks to his children, Right.
1: Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think even thinking about all the ways that has moved me, you know, more before I started doing a lot of work around the Enneagram of, you know, I laughed. <laughs> I've laughed over the years and said to people, you know, I think in in my 20s and 30s, before I started doing some really focused work in this space, I think I probably operated in a lot of moments like I believed I was the fourth member of the Trinity, or <laughs> at the very least, God's Southeast representative. You know, I had all these good <laughs> ideas. I just needed people to listen to those. And I yeah. I kind of cringe when I think back on what that must have been like for people I was in relationship mm-hmm. with before I started to do some focused work and pay attention to that because it's everything you said. I was so operating under the instruction and the criticism of that voice. And, you know, the thing I learned along the way, which is so important to remind ones, is that, you know, underneath it is, this deep desire to do good, you know, this, this drive to be perfect. It's really the sense of we want to do good in the world. We want to make things good. And so there is something good underneath, but the way it shows up, the way it comes out can be so judgy and critical that it is exactly what you said. It's my experience of funneling that voice I'm hearing in my head into my relationships with others. And criticizing them in the ways I feel criticized. So I love everything you're saying. I couldn't agree more with that.
2: Same. So one thing we're talking about in this series is how, you know, early in life, we often find these tools, whatever our type is, you know, that the tools of that type are really helping us. They're helping us find love or safety or freedom and autonomy. And so we become really attached to those tools because they are serving us. But that as we grow, those tools might not actually be the best tools for us to be using in every circumstance, you know, that we can reach beyond those tools to find a more wholehearted approach. Yes. Could you tell us about a time when maybe you experienced maybe an overattachment to those tools, you know, that you could let go?
1: Yes. If I think back into my own story, and I go all the way back to elementary school, I honestly cannot remember exactly how many consecutive years I won the Good Citizen Award mm-hmm. in my classroom. Mm-hmm. And I've laughed over the years in talking with other adult ones who had an identical experience. I was in a room with a group of folks um, doing some work around the Enneagram at one point, And somehow we ended up in this moment in the conversation of, discovering how many of the adult male ones in the room played jesus in the christmas pageant you know and we all all started laughing at that like this is not accidental that we just found our way to this exact same part and (laughs) and so when i think on that and when i think on you know the good citizen award i vividly remember being the student who and and i was i grew up in the 70s i'm aging myself and telling this, but I was the student that the teacher would ask to come to the board when she needed to leave the room for a moment and mm-hmm. write down names of mm-hmm. kids who were misbehaving. And I think I, in the beginning, took such pride in that, like, wow, she thinks I'm such a leader. She notices that I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm going to help others do that. And then over time, realizing what a horrible role to take on yes, and how it yes. feeds and fuels everything that's already challenging about the one like it just makes us more of this thing that we already are that isn't that isn't helpful in the world and so yes. I honestly don't know how many years that happened but I do remember a point of not wanting that assignment anymore and not loving the parts of me that kept getting that assignment and I think I was mm-hmm. in such excess of that in in that space in particular and then again the You know, the intention of the adults around me, I think, was probably good to call out leadership in me and to Mm -hmm. take note of the fact that I was trying hard or doing the right thing. But it just fed and fueled the things that I think can be true about the one in excess.
2: Mm -hmm. Isn't it funny to think that not only did it reinforce that in you, but it also probably reinforced something in the child who was never chosen? Right, absolutely. Like the class clown or the misbehaving child is like, well, you're going to pick that guy. Well, then <laughs> I'm going to unleash more, you know. Oh,
1: Absolutely. Because
2: we're all being put into our little boxes, sure. right?
1: Sure, sure.
2: Wow. Well, uh, we talk about that many ones, I would say all ones, have the belief that it's not okay to make mistakes, you know. And they're striving for this perfection, which I think is really a strive for integrity, Yes. You know, that they really want to be seen and to know deeply themselves that they have integrity. How have you seen that belief shape the way you approach relationships?
1: Hmm. It's a great question. I remember learning years ago, you know, that ones believe they are inherently flawed, mm-hmm. and that resonates strongly with me. In fact, years ago, I heard. I don't know if you've ever heard the John Mayer song in the blood but I remember mm. listening to one of the lines in that song is what about this feeling that I'm never good enough will it wash mm. out in the water or is it always in the blood mm. and I I remember I was on a walk and listening to that song and it stopped me in my tracks and and I got really teary you know and just yeah. and and thought about this the fact that that is my default setting believing I'm not good enough and and that You know, to his question, will it wash out in the water? Is it always in the blood? It's always in the blood would be my take on that. Like, I I don't think I'm going to wake up someday and wow, the inner critic decided to call it quits. He's just not going to be active anymore. So I believe to some degree that will always be there. But I think to your great question, with the work, what I have learned to do is reframe that, which is part of my Healthy Seven movement into What I mentioned briefly a little bit earlier, that desire to do good, the desire to make things new, to make things good in the world, and that there is to everything you just said, this deep desire for integrity. And I love that about ones. I -hmm. do. I, I work with three other ones in my setting, and I see so much evidence of that in them. They are folks who have so much integrity. Their desire for serving and supporting others out of that place of integrity is remarkable to watch. It really is. And they're deeply faithful people too. And that's Mm -hmm. beautiful to watch. And it's been my experience with a lot of ones as well. And where I think when it shows up in that space, it's extraordinary. When it shows up in the other space, I'm going to age myself in this too, but years ago, there was this character on Saturday Night Live that Dana Carvey played called the Church Lady. If you ever watched yes, that, yes, <laughs> I have I think, seen that. That's the Enneagram one off the rails right there. Yeah. You know, that's when it's not faithful, it's not full of integrity, you know, but it's just judgy and critical and calling out and drawing attention in all those ways. And I don't see that in the same way when I look at my other one colleagues in their practice who are operating from this really faithful place desiring integrity. That's extraordinary to see.
2: Mm, That's beautiful. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more with David Thomas. Do you want to understand your distinct approach to relationships? Do you wish you could explore the Enneagram through the gospel story? Are you looking for the perfect way to introduce your family, friends, or co-workers to the Enneagram and the gospel? If so, pick up your copy of Jesse Eubanks' book, How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram. In this illustrated guide, Jesse expertly utilizes the Enneagram to lead you to the heart of Jesus, where you'll uncover the wholeness you long for. As you peel back the layers of your false self, encounter Jesus, and experience the redemption of your true self, you will discover how to understand your personality and the personalities of others. Discover how Jesus empathizes with and heals your unique core wounds. Interpret the Enneagram through the gospel story and experience more meaningful relationships with God, others, and yourself. Head over to RelateBetter.com slash books to pick up your copy of How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others through the Enneagram by Jesse Eubanks today. Again, head over to RelateBetter.com slash books to pick up your copy of How We Relate now. Life is about relationships. It's time to transform yours. Welcome back. I'm Lindsay Lewis, and we're continuing our conversation with David Thomas. Okay, David, so we're talking in this series about moving beyond our type, you know, reaching for other tools that will serve us in different situations. So for the type one, their stress arrow is type four. Can you tell us about a time when maybe you were in a low place and saw yourself using tools from type four?
1: Yes. And I would say two things about my movement to four. One, I would say to your question, I I have several memories of my wife has a great catchphrase. She'll say to me when I'm moving to the low side of four or where I've camped out at the low side of four, she will say sometimes to me, oh, you bypassed sad and went straight to despair, which is exactly what I do. I don't look like I'm navigating deep sadness. I look depressed. I think when I'm on the low side, of four mm-hmm. and i i have a, a tendency to it looks like swimming in quicksand is what i think it must look like and and i you know to be someone who's doing dominant i abandon all doing that's when i know you know i'm mm-hmm. in that four mm-hmm. doing repressed space and so it is i think a noticeable move for me probably wasn't in earlier in life but is now in a way that i can catch myself a little quicker and that i can listen to the voice of You know, my wife, who I know loves me. And when I hear that, say, wow, okay, you're there and swimming in quicksand. What do you need to do? Who do you need to ask for help right now? So I would say that's some of what it looks like in excess. What I would say secondly about that movement, though, is I had uh, someone say to me years ago, which makes sense to me why they did. You know, I don't know a lot of therapists who are ones. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is I don't either in fact, when I mentioned I have three other colleagues, only one of them is a clinician. The other two are on our administrative staff. And so it is a pretty rare experience. I don't think there are a lot of ones in this field. There are, and they're great folks hear me say that clearly. But I think I have to borrow from other places to be really Mm -hmm. good at what I do. And I have a big two wing, which I think allows me to be good at the work I do. And my movement to the high side of four allows me to sit with people in pain, which is non instinctive for me Mm -hmm. in my number, but is one of my favorite things about fours. And so I have learned to do more of that over time where I don't activate that doing dominant part of me immediately, but just listen and ask more questions and become more comfortable with tears and more comfortable with waiting and more comfortable with uncertainty and more comfortable with discomfort and so i love that part about my movement to 4 and i'm grateful that's part of where i go in different moments and and even that concept of that was newer to me of learning that i could go to the high side of my stress number just as easily as I could go to the low side of my security number. I learned that in the last decade. I didn't know that in my first years of Enneagram work. And that was deeply encouraging to me because I saw my four movement as only a bad move early on. And, and it was a mm-hmm. gift to learn that actually, no, you could learn through stress, through the discomfort of being in this moment that isn't natural for you, how to move toward the high side of that and sit with people in extraordinary ways. So, In summary to that, I would say my two wing and my movement to four are probably the two things that equip me the best to be really good at the work I do as a therapist.
2: Yes, yes, I could not agree more. I think when we have a tool, we can reach to the high side. We don't have to always go to the low side. And then even when you said about the low side, if you didn't go there to the quicksand, you might have a harder time recognizing it and coming back. You know that In a way, even when we go to these less resourceful places, we need that as the flag going, wait, like something's wrong here. You need to take care of yourself or you need to process something or, you know, whatever it is that even at the low side, it is always serving us in the journey. Yes.
1: Well, and I would even add to that if I could, I think it has allowed me and I observed earlier in my work that sometimes I had a few extra hurdles in my work with fours when I was Mm -hmm. working with a student who's a four and, you know, the reality being. When you're working with a student, an adolescent, say, for example, you know, it's it's normal to development that they would be operating more on the unhealthy side than the healthy side a lot of times the way we all did early in our lives and certainly in that complicated stretch of development. But I found that I had a lot more compassion for fours who were stuck in the quicksand because I could see myself there. And it allowed Mm -hmm. me to operate from a posture of empathy differently the deeper I got into that understanding. Whereas before, I think I just got more frustrated or internally could feel myself kind of rolling my eyes at yes. some of their declarations. Like <laughs> one of my, <laughs> my one colleague who's a clinician that I mentioned, she was working with an adolescent girl who's a four one time. And she said to her, I don't want to grow. I just want to be understood, oh. which is a very poor thing to say, I, yes. I believe. And earlier that kind of declaration would have made me roll my eyes internally you know like are yeah. you kidding me like we <laughs> all need to be growing which is such a one thing to say you know yeah. and now I think oh my goodness and in any certain moment when I'm on the low side of four I could be saying any version of that myself or even if I'm not saying it I'm living it and so
2: yeah
1: it's really helped me have more compassion and empathy I think being in that high side of four
2: yes I love that Okay, let's talk about the flip side. Your growth arrow is type 7. And so a lot of people are jealous about this, because if you go to an Enneagram conference or listen to an Enneagram class, the homework given to ones is often, go have fun. And the rest of us are like, wait, that's not homework. What? (laughs) (laughs) So can you tell us, what does it look like for a type 1 to incorporate some of these type 7 tools?
1: To a great question. And I will first say it's my favorite move. It's my mm-hmm. all time favorite move for many of the reasons you just described in asking that question. But, you know, I have a really recent example. My wife and I just flew back from vacationing together in Florida, the two of us just 72 hours ago. And she is always quick to comment when I reach The high side of seven on vacation which Mm -hmm. I think ones do you know I just think ones have the capacity to maybe be their best selves on vacation often I've uh, observed it in myself heard a lot of ones say that to be true and and I feel it it happens about day two of vacation you know day one I'm Mm -hmm. still kind of swimming in the logistics and letting go of what I didn't finish on my to-do list at work all those things and then about day Mm -hmm. two I get there and my wife will look at me often and say, you know, things like, you are so funny. You know, Mm. you're so fun. Things that (laughs) wouldn't necessarily be the first thing said about me in my workspace, you know, or or if I'm in the middle of a to-do list, I'm not fun or funny typically. And so I love that I, out of that move, develop a lightheartedness and my capacity for reframing, that's probably my favorite thing about the movement. I love that about sevens. And certainly that reframing can be unhealthy. Let's acknowledge that. But for a one with the inner critic, I think reframing can be one of our superpowers. I mean, if I didn't have access to that, I'd be sunk. I really would. And so I see so much evidence. And we were even on this vacation, my wife and I were having a lot of hard conversations about just some different things that we're navigating in our lives and my capacity for what I would call healthy reframing and that helping her see other things and leaning into my nine wing and seeing both sides of things, you know, I could just mm-hmm. do more of all that healthy movement um, when I access the strength of seven. So I love it. And and you and I were talking just a little bit briefly earlier before we hit record of I'm thankful that I had that one move into the aggressive stance as well that I -hmm. think allows me to tap into a really good and needed and healthy strength that I respect and, and and am envious of with three sevens and eights and so I love that move I'm so incredibly grateful for that move
2: I love that it's like, you need a different name when you're on vacation. <laughs> it's like day two, your wife is like, oh, welcome. Now you're Dave. You're not David anymore. <laughs> well, and,
1: you know, I can remember back to the first time my kids were old enough to notice that and articulate mm. it. I know they noticed it before, but they couldn't even articulate it. But I remember my daughter being, I think she was five years old and we were on a vacation at one point, And she looked at my wife and said, dad is so funny. Like (laughs) she never said it before yes she never said it before she didn't necessarily say it when we got home but (laughs) it's like who is this guy and I like him you know not that I didn't have strengths that she liked and appreciated but it is to say it was like she made this discovery that she could name for the very first time and she was able to experience a different part of me that I'm grateful for and and even to the work you and I are discussing that I don't want to just bring up the high side of seven on vacation so yeah. there's a lot of good work for one to do to figure out how can i access that more than just the once a year or twice a year when i'm out of town yes it will most likely emerge in that space but i can access that in other places mm-hmm. and so that is that's part of my work too
2: mm, i love that well we have talked about your day work of um, daystar counseling ministries and i'm just curious is there something in your own life story or something in your oneness that fueled your passion for this counseling ministry?
1: Hmm. If I look back into my story there, Lindsay, I think I've always known I would do this work. Now, I hmm. ran from that for a period of time and moved in some different directions in choosing majors, but I look all the way back to being a high school student and I can remember having conversations with friends where they would tell me things that I became aware they weren't telling other people. And the safety that I think they somehow experienced with me being a place they could do that. And then fast forward into college, I worked every summer of my college years at a camp for elementary age children. And my colleagues would sometimes come and get me with the really homesick kids who couldn't fall asleep and couldn't stop crying because... You know, they were like, you're the homesick whisperer. Like, will you come yeah. in here and see if you can help him? And I and that. I, it didn't scare me. You know, it didn't overwhelm me. And I really loved it. I can't tell you how many kids I ended up in conversations with, at, you know, in a canoe or at the archery range or whatever at this camp who would tell me that their moms and dads were fighting a lot or getting a divorce. And it just, there was something always that I think God was growing in me that would make this my life's work. And so mm-hmm. I think I have always known. And if I were to think about my oneness in that, I had an Enneagram teacher say one time that ones make it safe for other people in the world. And I loved that. It was one of the more affirming things. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, But I think that's part of what God was building in me early on that would make people tell me things that they might not tell other people. I think there was a safety. And, and I, if I dissect that, I think it's so many of the things you and I've been talking about. I think it's that integrity. Mm-hmm. I think it's that desire for making good, that wanting to be safe. And so I'd never heard it put in those terms of safety, but I liked that a lot. I attached strongly to that. And so I do think that's part of where my oneness comes into play in this field that I think has allowed me to do the work I do.
2: Yeah, that's so beautiful. Well, our last question for you today is how does your relationship with Jesus specifically change your approach to yourself and your relationships?
1: You know, the first thing that comes to mind is something you wisely said a little bit earlier that as I spend time in the New Testament and I read the accounts of Jesus, there are no accounts of him doing anything but operating from a place of love and empathy and compassion and the way he would speak to people, even when he mm-hmm. would challenge them, even when he would correct them, even when he would, you know, I could fill in the blank with so many things, was always so full of love. It was never critical. And so if that is the ultimate target I want to be moving toward in my life and my marriage and my parenting and my work and i do want to be moving toward that target at all times then there's just no place really for the criticism and even to you and i laughing earlier about my you know mistaking myself for the fourth member of the trinity or the god southeast representative it's like (laughs) that's not your role like that's not your assignment it's not anyone's assignment and so I'm called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm not called to be a member of the Trinity. And so I don't need to be right about things. I don't even need to be heard in all moments. And so there again, I think it's such a picture of where this tool has been invaluable in my own life. If I work to identify the place of understanding and what it means to be a one in this world. And then I look at all the you know different parts and pieces you and I've been talking about today, the movement, the numbers I have access to. We haven't even discussed the fact that the two numbers on either side of me, my two wings are my favorite two numbers on the Enneagram. Like I love twos and nines. I'm married to a two. I have a daughter who's a two. I have a son who's a nine. My dad is a nine. Like They are some of my favorite people on the planet. I love that I have access to both those numbers and then I can lean into both of them. But I cannot do that unless I do some deep work with this tool. I will Mm. simply live in more excess of my oneness over and over and over. My personality will just get bigger. The inner critic will get louder. My criticism of myself and others will become more exaggerated. And so... It's one of the reasons that I love this tool. You know, it helps us figure out who we are and then it helps us move beyond that. And so, you know, into, as we've been discussing, these healthy spaces and how I can move as someone who bends toward negativity and looking at what's wrong and criticism and judgment toward more empathy and compassion and understanding and awareness. So I love this tool. Mm -hmm. And I'm just so so incredibly grateful you have created this platform in the space to have these kind of meaningful, life-giving conversations for people. And I just cannot champion this tool enough, again, because I have seen it be transformative in my own life and others. So thank you for creating space where these kind of conversations could happen because I believe it changes the game. I've lived that. Well, that is
2: so kind. We really appreciate that. I mean it. So normally, if Jesse was here, we would switch to a game. But I'm really enjoying this conversation with David Thomas. So stay tuned, and we'll be back with more of my conversation with David Thomas. Jesse, I find it so difficult to keep up with all the different Enneagram materials out there.
0: Yeah, I know, there are so many teachers out there now, and books are coming out constantly. Mm -hmm. It can be really challenging to keep track of everything. And that's actually why we created a thing called Enneagram Quick Notes, a searchable spreadsheet compiling the teachings of over 20 authors.
2: Yes, this is my favorite tool to use when I'm looking for show notes or trying
0: to tell somebody about the Enneagram. And it's all organized in an actual spreadsheet, so you can actually know which author had this idea and this concept. Mm -hmm. And you can quickly look through tons and tons of data and gain a lot of self-clarity and see how things relate to one another. There's a ton of different categories that we cover. Some of those categories include things like type basics, subtypes, strategies, relationships, stress and growth, childhood, idols, deadly sins, things about Jesus, virtues, discipleship, time and discernment, and so much more. So if you are looking just for a really fast, instant way to gain clarity on all things Enneagram, this is the resource for you.
2: Head on over to RelateBetter.com and click on the Shop button to pick up a copy of the Enneagram Quick Notes.
0: Again, head over to RelateBetter.com, click on the Shop button, and get a copy of Enneagram Quick Notes now. It's time to move past confusion about the Enneagram and into clarity.
2: Welcome back to the Eneacast, Lindsay Lewis. All right, David, this has been great, but now it's time for 11 quick questions. So we're going to ask you 11 questions and you can answer with one word, one phrase, or one sentence. Perfect. Okay, are you ready? Great. Number one, what is a hobby that you enjoy? Reading. Same. Number two, what is your favorite dessert?
1: A warm chocolate chip cookie with pecans.
2: Oh, that sounds amazing. We have so much in common. (laughs) Do we? We got to have cookies together.
1: You need to come to Nashville. My wife has an insane recipe.
2: Oh, I would love to.
1: Okay.
2: Number three, what stirs up hope?
1: My children.
2: Hmm. Number four, what stirs up dread?
1: My taxes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Number five, where was your last vacation?
1: Florida. Just got Hmm. back from the beach and it was fantastic.
2: That's awesome. Number six, what is the last book you read and enjoyed?
1: Hmm. Okay, I've read several books lately that I don't know that I enjoyed. Some were work-related that I needed to read, and mm-hmm. I read some fiction I didn't love, um, and oh. I love fiction. Um, but I would say the last book I read and enjoyed, I know, a book called Tell Me More by Kelly Corrigan. Okay. I don't reread a lot of books, but I read that book for the second time. There were some things I was thinking about and wanted to go back to, and it's an exquisite book. I love Kelly's work. Mm. If you have a chance, read The Middle Place um, is one of her first great books. And then Tell Me More is fantastic.
2: All right. I'm writing it down right now. Great. Right. <laughs> Number seven. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Early bird. What is your coffee shop order?
1: I'm really simple. Dark rose, just black. No cream or sugar. Just black. hmm
2: I have to tell you that that's kind of a one order right there. I
1: think you're right. (laughs) You're exactly right.
2: Uh, What is one personal vice that you'd like to get rid of?
1: Mm, Comfort eating. Oh, yeah. Which I would say when we talked about the high side of seven, but when I go to the low side of seven, gluttony makes so much sense to me. Like Mm -hmm. I overeating is a trap for me. That's that's a primary vice. So that's when I know I'm in seven space, but not the high side of Mm -hmm. seven.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is one thing you would convince the world of if you could? Empathy. Mm -hmm. All right. Number 11. What is the least Enneagram type one thing you've ever done?
1: You know, I would say, I think it's something that I do daily. I think extending grace to myself. Mm. Nothing in me instinctively thinks to do that or really wants to do that. And I have long believed if I can't extend grace to myself, I really can't extend it well to others. So I've had to practice and practice and practice. And I've challenged some friends who are ones that we just have got to learn to say, it's good enough. It's not perfect. It's good enough. And good enough is great it's really great. And good enough is actually as good as it can get sometimes. Um, But I think unless you practice saying that as a one and extending grace to yourself, when you don't hit the target you were aiming for, it's really hard to extend that to others. So I would say that's the most non one thing I do.
2: That is so good. Mm. Such good stuff. Well, David, you have been such a pleasure, such a delight. I know that not only once, but all of us are going to gain so much from the words and the stories that you've shared with us today. So thank you so much for being willing to come on here and just share yourself so vulnerably with us today.
1: Thank you for having me and and for asking great questions. You asked really great questions, by the way. Oh, thank you. I could have stayed in this conversation for hours, but I really do hope you could hear me saying earlier how grateful I am that you have created this space and and how incredibly valuable I think these conversations are so it was a genuine pleasure I'm thankful you'd have me
0: if you benefited at all from this podcast please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts your review will help other people discover our show
2: Special thanks to our guest today, David Thomas. You can catch up with him on Instagram at Raising Boys and Girls or find parenting resources over at RaisingBoysandGirls.com. This show is brought to you by Relate Better. Are you tired of living with relational dysfunction? It's time to start enjoying healthy relationships.
0: Get new relational tools through our articles, workshops, books, and video courses to help you build better relationships by visiting RelateBetter.com. Get free resources such as Your Relationship Cheat Sheet or our Say More Conversation Cards Digital Edition by heading over to the website. Again, if you're ready to build better relationships, check out relatebetter.com. This episode was written by Lindsay Lewis and myself. Anna Tran is our media director and producer. Kevin Morris is our audio editor. Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere and Murphy DX. I'm Lindsay Lewis. And I'm Jesse Eubanks. Remember, the eye can see everything but itself. Find people to journey with you because you were created for community.